Hi, it's wonderful to get together again. And Women in the Word, thanks for being here. And thanks for being here for each other. It's so great. I love the praise today. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. And last week we left the Israelites at a wonderful vacation spot (laughs) where there are 70 palm trees and they are surrounded by 12 springs of water. Uh, Just in case we were wondering where that is, I found out Elam, which is where they were, today would have been located in Wadi Garandel, about seven miles south of Ain Harara. (laughs) Now we know. (laughs) Not many days have gone by since their miraculous deliverance from Egypt. Not many days since God opened the Red Sea for their escape. Not many days since Israel sang to the Lord and danced before the Lord. A couple million people dancing on the sand, safe, away from the Egyptians. So life was good until they got hungry. It made me think, boy, they quickly forgot the words of their song that praised God. And isn't it so much easier to praise God when we're getting what we want? Isn't it a challenge to praise him when we're waiting for what we want? Or he tells us no for what we're hungry for when we find ourselves in a spiritual wilderness. You know, when I first married Ted, uh, he took eight high school freshmen on what Young Life called a wilderness retreat. It was a very strenuous, very difficult retreat. I'm not saying Ted was in shape to do that. Um, None of these guys were. They just didn't know what they had coming. There wasn't a lot of food to eat while they were there. Every day, they hiked in the highest mountain areas without stopping. So they all began calling this journey the High Country Death March. They were miserable. When they got hungry, they got mad. In fact, one of them named Chris, I remember them telling me the story. He finally just laid down on a field and said, leave me here. Just go on. I mean it. Leave me here to die. (laughs) They had to pull him up and carry him partway. So Ted kept a journal during that time. And so once I got to read part of the journal and I'm going to paraphrase it for you. God help me. (laughs) That was the journal. (laughs) He did also say, this is the worst thing I've ever done, but I have to act like I like it. (laughs) He said, will we ever get down from these wretched mountains? My brother Lee was on this trip probably the least prepared for this trip. And he loves to tell the story about how they were starving. And one day they stopped. They were actually going to get to eat for lunch. And they watched the leader of this group, who they all despised by this point, (laughs) take a powder bag of egg salad and pour it in a cup and mix it with water. Now, my brother hates, hates, egg salad. But he said, when that egg salad touched my mouth, it was like heaven. (laughs) 
It tasted like heaven from above. Now, has he ever eaten an egg salad since then? No. He does not want to think about that trip in the mountains. Okay, so that was a spiritual wilderness. Two men wrote this hymn in the 1700s that it's almost like an Israelite could have written it. It reminds us even of our own wilderness that God is our help and our provider. Listen to these words. O Lord, in whose presence my soul takes delight, on whom in affliction I call my comfort by day, my song in the night, my hope, my salvation, my all. Where do you, dear shepherd, abide with your sheep? To feed them in pastures of love. Why in the valley of death should I weep or alone in this wilderness rove? Why should I wander an alien from you or cry in the desert for bread? Dear shepherd, I hear, I'm following your call. I know the sweet sound of your voice. Restore, defend me. You are my all, and in you will I ever rejoice. Why go through our wilderness alone? Our great and loving God, he met our needs in the past. He has not changed. He will continue to be our provider. Like Israel, he's our pillar of strength in the day, and he burns on throughout the night for us, just like he provided for Israel in the desert. He provides for us in our desert, so we can learn a lot from them in this study. You know, Jesus had a few things to say about this. Look at Matthew 7 on your verse sheet. Jesus said, just ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Trusting God as a loving provider is something we all continue to learn. Israel really needed to learn it. And guess what? That meant they could not stay in Elam. They had to leave Elam. One writer put it this way. God doesn't multiply our Elams. He can't trust us there. He causes us to lie down in Elams only that we may be able to better tread in the paths of righteousness in which he leads us. He suffers us not to linger there, but he calls us out to stretch our moral muscles, make us fit to join the believer's race. So rest in Elam, but never grow complacent. Slumber, if you will, but let your lamps be trimmed and your staff be ready in your hand so that at the first movement of God's cloud, by day or by night, you can start again on your obedient march. I just thought that was great. You know, when we look at Israel's spiritual journey, we're going to realize things about our own spiritual journey. Israel, I mean, sorry, Elam is not the abiding place of the children of God. If you're a child of God, it's not your abiding place. We can accomplish God's will only camping in the most comfortable places. 
We have to be willing to get up and climb that hard mountain, go down into that deep valley if we're gonna obey his will. Jesus said something about that too, Matthew 10. He said, whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So when Israel left the comforts of Elam, they entered the wilderness of, what do we all think it says there? Sin. I thought, wow, this is a perfect illustration. <laughs> they went from the comfort to the wilderness of sin because we're about to see a lot of sinning that they did. You actually pronounce this word zin uh, instead of sin, but I do think it's a good picture of what happens. Israel is gonna learn through their suffering that the God of their miraculous deliverance would also be a God of miraculous provision. They didn't understand that yet. They had to learn that. They had to learn, yes, he's a powerful ruler. He's a powerful king, but he's also our loving father. He's a God of glory. He's also a God of grace. You know, for you and I, our salvation was our miraculous deliverance. And now we count on God as our provider to go through the ups and downs each day of our life. So let's look at Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Zin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed for the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, so about 30 days have passed since their miraculous delivery from Egypt. You think it would have been 30 years the way they are so tired and upset. They had seen, remember, God split the Red Sea. They ran across on dry ground. They had danced and sang these words earlier. Who is like our God? Who is among him awesome in power? Awesome in praises. Working wonders. But they never thought to ask him for food. It never seemed to occur to him. So instead, they grumbled against the Lord. Now, they thought they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but they were really grumbling against the Lord, which Moses will point out to them. Remember, they did bring food with them, but through all these travels, a lot of that would have been depleted. Um, they were used to a variety of foods, really good meat, fish, bread, vegetables, onions, leeks, garlic, tasty food. You know, when I went to Israel, this is what we ate just for breakfast. <laughs> it's true. They would have this buffet of everything green and red and bright, just healthy, great stuff. So here they are, outside of their paradise now, in the wilderness, in the sand. They're scraping up crumbs out of their basket, and they look up, there's the two guys that brought us here. There's those two guys that took us away from that delicious, abundant food we were used to having. And so they talked to each other and grumbled about it as if it was their fault. 
accusing Moses of bringing him to the desert to die. But in reality, when you grumble against God leaders, God's will, you're grumbling against God himself. So you can almost kind of picture like if you were walking past a tent, you could hear people in there, whoa, 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 whoa. You walk past another tent, whoa, whoa, Moses, whoa, 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 Aaron, whoa, whoa, whoa. As they grumbled and grumbled, and they'd be saying things like, remember when we used to sit by pots of meat? Those were the days. They regretted their deliverance from Egypt. Those were the days of slavery. Those were the days of pain. Those were the days of being held captive in a land of false gods by a cruel people. How would Israel get to this unspiritual, ungrateful place? Israel's hunger for food was greater than their hunger for the promises of God. With their physical need before them, not only did they forget God, they forgot who they were. But God didn't. That's how great God is. Israel were the people of God's privileged promises. God called them, we've been reading, his firstborn son, a holy nation, a chosen people, a people of the promise, the covenant, and the promise of a marvelous land and a bright future. And instead of living with the strength of that promise in their hearts, they behave like any other lost nation would behave, blaming and complaining. And I thought, what a great lesson when we're needy. We don't wanna act like people who don't know God. We don't wanna act like we don't have promises from God himself. We don't want to blame people. We don't want to be known as grumblers. We don't want to sit around dreaming selfish dreams. We don't want to forget the promises of God. Or what will happen is our hunger for the wrong things will overwhelm our ability to remember who we are. You know, there was a speaker once who talked about her friend named Lena. And uh, she was a maid. She was very poor. Um, she was very lonely. She lived by herself. And she has told the story of, uh, Lena has to others, about the day that she looked out on her porch and a really good-looking, worldly man was standing there. Lena, let me in. I brought a steak. A steak for dinner. Let me in. And Lena says, it was one of the most tempting things I've ever gone through to look at this good-looking man on my step with a steak. <laughs> I was lonely, and I wanted something good to eat. But then she remembered who she was. And she stood up and thought, I'm a child of the Most High King. He's going to meet my needs. I don't need to open this door. And she didn't open it. She knew who she was. You know, her words were wise words. Israel spoke some horrible words, wishing that God's very hand that delivered them from Egypt would kill them there in the desert. So God did stretch out his hand, not to kill them, to bless them. He led them there. 
He would provide for them. Look at verse four. The Lord said to Moses, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for them. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people at evening, you will know it's the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because he's heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling isn't against us, but against the Lord. Aaron, it says after that, took the people and they stood on the grounds in Egypt and they stood on that wilderness and they looked out and the glory of God approached them in a cloud. He had come to provide for them and guess what? In the presence of God's glory, the complaining stopped. I bet you didn't hear anybody saying another grumbling word in the presence of their provider. We have to do the same thing in our wilderness so we don't grumble. We look out through the desert for the glory of God. We look to see what's our provider doing. Is he coming? One person said this, there are times in our spiritual walk when we remember God is near. God can. God will. God does. And it's enough to silence every murmur and hush every fear. God is here in this wilderness with me and I dare not give up hope or utter a word of complaint. You know, there's a difference between sharing my hurts with God, which he does want us to do, and complaining against God. Israel heard from their provider that day when they looked for him in the wilderness and he told them, you will eat meat at twilight, you'll be filled in the morning with bread, and he spread a table for his children in the wilderness. He sent manna to satisfy their hunger and meat. And since it's early in Israel's training, remember, they've only been a month out of Egypt, it's early in their training. I love how gracious God is here. He gives very little reproof to Israel. He gives no punishment for their complaints. He didn't bring up, you've forgotten all the great benefits I've given you. He didn't say, I'm gonna chastise you for your false accusations against Moses and Aaron. He didn't chastise them for their exaggerated opinion of Egypt, and he poured out no punishment for their distrust of God himself. He did, though, rain bread from heaven every day for 40 years. That's their loving father. Now, when they first saw the bread from heaven, they said, what is it? Which means manna. So that's, when you say manna, you're saying, what is it? It was like coriander seed. It was white, thin flakes. It tasted like wafer with honey. It had to be packed full of vitamins to nourish them as they traveled around in the, in the wilderness. And Numbers 11 tells us more about it. Let's look at that on your verse sheet. The manna was like coriander seed. It's appearance like that of bdellium. 
The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars, boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, that's when the manna fell with it. Okay, so coriander is cilantro. So it didn't taste like cilantro. That would have been interesting. But the seed, it was the color of the seed of cilantro, which was white. Bedelium is a white, waxy resin that's fragrant. And so somehow, um, manna was also like bedelium. When the dew evaporated, there was this fine, flaky frost on the ground, and that was the manna. If you waited too long, if you snooze, you lose. The sun would melt it away. So it sort of got them up and going and got them going on their day. Each day you would come to your tent, find out what kind of manna are we having for lunch. Baked, boiled, fried, manna cakes, manna pies, manna meatloaf, manicotti. Did we know it was that ancient? We didn't know that. Now, manna and quail weren't the only things Israel ate over the years. Remember, they brought their flocks. They brought their herds. They must have still had some of those. They would help. Later on, when we read the story of Israel, we learn that they saw the Edomites and they purchased some food from them. We read later about wheat and other meat that Israel does have throughout the years. But their main staple was this manna from heaven. And I think uh, it must have been delicious. Really, it was from God. It must have been delicious. It was food from heaven, Psalm says. Psalms also says it's the bread of angels. What a gift from God. And let's think about the quail a minute. I think this is probably how God arranged for them to have quail every day. Quail would naturally pass and migrate through this area from Africa. And sometimes they would be so exhausted from flying, they would just go on the grounds of the desert to rest some. They have a lot of ancient records that talk about acres and acres and acres of quail on the ground too tired to really move. They also have drawings of Egyptians taking nets and throwing them over bushes because quail were resting in the nets. Um, in fact, I thought this was interesting. Last year, I sort of had that experience. I came home one day. There's this beautiful bird in my front yard. And I'm like, what is that? I'd never seen anything like it. Sort of the body of a pigeon but much more beautiful colors and this long, beautiful tail. Well, we realized it was like a homing pigeon. It had a little clip on its leg. It must have been traveling, traveling, traveling. It landed in my yard and it did not move for two days. If I took a net and threw it out, I could have caught it. It was exhausted. And it took us a while to figure it out because we said, that bird is still just sitting. He'd kind of walk around a little, but then he would just sit there. So I thought, I wonder if it's tired. And I took some bird seed and some water, and I went in the house and looked out the window. It had run to the bird seed and the water. It ate and drank for two days, and then it flew away. So that's how God brought quail into the hands of the Israelites. 
Uh, Israel gathered God's provision each day and God tested to see if they would obey on how to do the gathering. He wanted to see if they would walk in his law. They needed to learn being the children of God means we follow our Father's commandments. Also, Moses is about to be given the law on Mount Sinai from God. God would expect them to obey that law. So they needed to begin learning to truly obey him. So they were supposed to gather as much manna each day as they could eat. According to the number of people in their tent, they were supposed to each get an omer, which was about two quarts. Uh, they were commanded not to have leftovers, not to leave it overnight. On the sixth day, gathered twice as much, and they were to keep leftovers for the next day, the Sabbath day, the seventh day, because they would not go out to gather. Let's see if Israel passed the test. Verse... Let's see, 19, chapter 16. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of the manna over till the morning. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. Moses was angry with them. But morning by morning they gathered it as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers each. And when all the leaders came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord said, tomorrow's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you bake, boil what you boil, all that's left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside and it did not stink and there were no more worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for it's a Sabbath day to the Lord. Today you won't find it in the field. Six days you gather, but on the seventh there will be none. But on the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain in your place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So did they pass yes or no? No when their worry got a hold of them. And it made me think, you know, when I let worry rule my heart, I do the dumbest things. I do. And right here, Israel's worry is hunger. I might get hungry again. There might not be enough food. They don't trust God enough. So their lack of faith brings them to make poor choices of disobedience, which resulted in wormy manna. They tried to gather again on the seventh day when he said nothing will be there because they're worrying about who's going to give me food. I'm going to hide some. God was teaching them to honor the Sabbath as a day of rest. So he rebuked the people of Israel for their disobedience and he chastised them. He sent them to their tents for timeout. And they went. So they did obey and do that and they learned what it means to rest in God. We know what Moses wanted the children to learn by God's provision, but what did God exactly want them to learn? Verse 12 says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. When we witness and acknowledge God's provision, it helps us understand God better. God gave them the opportunity to know him better through his provision. 
That's when we learn, wow, he's powerful, but he really loves me. He's strong, but he's caring. And we trust him for our future. Look at Philippians 4. Paul says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know how at bridal showers, sometimes you go and they hand you a card to write down advice for the new couple? And I kind of cringe because you're trying to talk to people and you're like, you know, you have to go hide in a corner somewhere. I almost always write, as a couple, wake up each morning and look for the goodness of God. I say that from up here a lot as well. And here's my thought. If you look for the provision of God, you're going to know God better. You're not going to make up your own thoughts about why God should do this, why didn't he do that, I only wish he would do this. When you look for his provision, you will know him better. So Israel carried manna with a, in a jar like God commanded. They set it before the Lord to remember what he had done. It was a testimony of his goodness. And when they looked into that jar, they were looking at God's perfect provision in their lives. You know, if you and I could take how God's provided for us and put it in a jar, we would not find a storehouse big enough. Therefore, where do we carry that memory? In our hearts, like a jar of manna, all those great things God has given and provided for us. It's a discipline, and when we do it, we will know him better. So if we want to feel satisfied with God's provision, our hunger for spiritual things must outweigh our hunger for that which is physical. Matthew 5 tells us this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You know, God's not going to provide us all the things we want, but he's going to meet every spiritual need we have. That's why he came. That's why Jesus came. That's what he does. He's the living bread from heaven. He fulfills the hungers of all of our starving souls. That's why he came. Look at John 6. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, Israel finds himself facing another need. Let's look at chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with his people? They are almost ready to stone me. Okay, does this sound a little bit like a deja vu (laughs) from our last story? It wasn't exactly because it was worse. The grumbling and the murmuring in the closed tents had become open arguing and yelling and quarreling with Moses. After all their difficult traveling toward the mountains of Sinai, they needed water and there was none to be found. The desert oasis had failed them. As they traversed through the trails, the rocks, the granite walls, the glare of the sun on them, they were thirsty. They had high hopes that Rephidim, which means resting place, would meet their needs, but it didn't. So their murmurs were angry quarrels against Moses. If you saw the movie Exodus with Charlton Heston, you can picture little Edward G. Robinson as the guy running around getting everybody mad at Moses. There were lots of guys like that doing that, blaming him for their predicament, maybe threatening him, maybe preparing to stone him. An uprising was in place. Israel was testing God by demanding water, not from God, from Moses. The test was this, by demanding water from Moses, they once again were ignoring the power and the provision of God, and they were testing his patience. In fact, they didn't even think God was with them. As they yelled at Moses, they cried out, is the Lord even among us or not? They couldn't see the evidence of God's leading. But look back at verse one, what does it say? They moved out of the wilderness according to the commandment of God. And what else is always with them? The pillar of cloud in the day, the fire at night, and they're wondering, is God even with us? Israel was so focused on their need, they lost sight of who could meet the need. Proverbs 19 tells us this. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, guess who his heart rages against? The Lord, even though it's our own folly. In this case, Israel's folly is to expect provision from Moses. And when they didn't get it, they shook a fist at God. That's what we do. Let's see what happens. Verse four, five, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I lost my place. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord even with us or not? You know, the people turn on Moses, Moses turns to the Lord. That's what he always does. That's why God has him as this leader who knows and walks in faith. So the God of Israel, by this command we just read, he's going to affirm Moses' leadership and he's going to affirm God will, that he is there with him. 
This command reinforced Moses' position as a leader and the truth that God would provide. So Moses, we picture him after he gets this command on how to handle this water thing. He's taking these commanding steps of faith and obeying God and going to Mount Horeb. He's carrying the staff of God in his hand. And behind him, the elders are following. They're gonna be witnesses And I think their eyes were on that staff of Moses the whole time they follow him. When he obeyed God and struck a rock, a rock, and water gushed out of that rock, the elders were there to witness that. And I bet their robes got wet. I bet it was this huge rush of water, but I bet they shouted in joy. I bet they praised God. If they had Yetis with them, they would have filled them up. Those are cups. Taking them back to camp. God was pleased to satisfy the thirst of his people, his quarreling, complaining people that were about to stone God's chosen leader, Moses. It was a miracle from God. It demonstrates the patience of God with us. He demonstrated his love by quenching their thirst miraculously. And Moses then calls this place, they can't celebrate a whole lot because he calls it Masa and Mariba, temptation and murmuring are what those words mean to reflect the attitudes of the Hebrews at this particular time. And I was thinking, truthfully, the whole history of the 40 years of Israel's traveling through the desert is a good example of God's patience with us, of his steadfast love with us, because he would be dealing with a people who constantly provoked him by their lack of faith. So this is a good lesson for us to learn when our faith is weak. We don't want to settle in to live in Masa and Mariba. We don't want to do that. We want to look up expectantly. We want to act like Moses. We want to take God by our side and take bold steps of faith and look up expectantly because God stands ready for us to provide for us, to provide his power to refresh our thirsty souls. Going through life, we are going to have times we are in a desert. We need God to refresh our thirsty souls. We don't settle in those grumbly places. We believe it. We look up. We look to him and we move forward. We don't want an uprising to come in our hearts against our Lord and God. Where are you, God? Are you even here? Do you even hear me? You've deserted me. We don't want to let that uprising come in our hearts. What if we remember his goodness in our lives? What if we remember all the parting seas, the parting of red seas he did for us throughout our life to help us along the way? What if we trust in his timing? Even if our thirst is great. What if we let him be the one to quench our thirst when he wants to? There was a day a Samaritan woman came up to Jesus. They were standing at a well. She was a thirsty woman. Did Jesus care about her physical thirst? Not as much he cared about her 
heart thirst, her spiritual thirst. Look at John 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the water God wants us to drink. Our thirst quenched by relationship with the living God. That's what will quench our thirst. The Lord's provided food. He's provided water. He's now going to provide victory. Look at verse 8 of chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. When he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You know, I think it's very possible that God ordained this water miracle just before this as a way to strengthen their faith, so when this came about, they would have their strength their faith uh, restored in God and what he could do. And I thought, you know, our trials are often blessings in disguise because they're strengthening our faith for a deeper trial that may be standing in front of us. Uh, Israel would be confronted with many, many enemies. They had to learn at this point in time, God will give us victory. We don't need to walk in fear. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. In fact, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. You remember Esau was Jacob, uh, the father of Israel, Jacob's um, brother. They were nomadic people. They were vicious people. They roamed the deserts. This fight with Israel probably took place because the Amalekites were getting nervous seeing these two million people sort of heading towards their territory. They at this time were also in a nice place, Rephidim, and they probably thought, we want to go there. And we learn in Deuteronomy that they came up behind Israel on swift camels and began to kill the old, the weak, the feeble Israelites in the back. And so they are called to have this battle. Deuteronomy also tells us the Amalekites feared not God. But Israel did. Yay, they act in faith in this story. I loved it. Moses and Joshua, they didn't falter. They didn't fear the enemy. They approached them boldly. And the children of Israel themselves faced the Amalekites courageously led by Joshua. They prevailed against their enemy in God's power. Now, this is the first time we've seen Joshua. You're going to see more of him in the Old Testament for sure. He was 45 years old at the time. Through the 40 years of wilderness, uh, you'll see that he is Moses' great help and personal minister throughout um, their story. He had a lot of faith and a lot of courage, but I wonder what he felt like 
when Moses said, gather the men that are strong and will be good and be able to fight. And he's thinking, we all have been slaves our whole lives. None of us are trained to fight. None of us are skilled in battle. We don't even know what that is. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because you said so. And it's, it's a word from God. And he gathered the men that he could find. He set them against a trained, equipped, and cruel enemy. But the equipment and the skill of the enemy would not be what prevailed over the Amalekites. It would be the prayers of Moses. It would be the power of Israel's general, which was God himself. So we can picture this first battle. Moses is standing high on a hill. He's looking over the battlefield. He's praying. The soldiers could look up and they'd see this picture of Moses with his arms outstretched, holding God's staff in prayer to God. And they would fight hard and strong in courage. Aaron and her helping hold his hands up when they needed to. But was it this staff that won the battle? Was it a magical staff? Who was the staff really for? Israel, to build their faith. Because when they saw it, it was always Moses raising it to heaven. It would point their eyes up and they'd think, oh yeah, it's God who's fighting the battle. Oh yeah, God's gonna give us victory. Oh yeah, we're depending on God. And they would have courage to go forward. This holding up the arms of Moses with the staff was a gesture that we believe in the power of God. It also again made Israel feel more assured again of Moses' leadership, his relationship to God, his relationship to them. When that staff was lifted high and he's doing this, what do you think it reminded him of? Crossing the Red Sea when God miraculously delivered them. So I think it affirmed again Moses' leadership and God's involvement in their lives. Israel learned through warfare that God would provide victory over their enemies that were coming in the future. And God instructed Moses to memorialize it, this very first battle of Israel, and he wanted Joshua to remember it. Joshua is in military training. He is going to be a mighty commander. It's also the first mention of official writing when uh, historical records would be kept, when God says to keep records of this. Moses would have learned through keeping records in Pharaoh's school of government. So they want to keep the facts of this battle intact, and Moses writes it down. And God also adds to this record, he's going to blot out the memory of Amalek. You know, Psalm 83 tells us that when the Amalekites first decided to fight Israel, this is what they said, let's wipe out the whole nation of Israel, and no one will remember their name anymore. Let's do that. But their sentence of national extinction for Israel passed by divine decree unto them. God says, I'm going to blot out the name of the Amalekites forevermore. And the Amalekites continued to battle with Israel off and on until King David destroyed them. And then God was honored by an altar built by Moses. 
which he built for him, and he called it Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, the mighty protection of God covering them, covering his children like a banner over them by bringing victory over their enemies. God was a mighty banner that protected and preserved his people. And then Moses says something interesting. Did you see that line? He says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And what that actually means is, a hand is against the throne of Yahweh. That's the hand of Amalek. That means there would be war between God and Amalek in the future. Not so much a war against two nations, a war against God and Amalek's descendants. And God would win. What does this battle have to do with us? It reminds us when we find ourselves in a wilderness battlefield, we are not alone. That God himself is our general. He has his banner over us. We can look up in faith like Moses. We can reach out to take his provision. We can look up in that same kind of faith. And when we do, we realize we can face the enemies the world gives us. Injustice, disease, illness, rejection. Because God is our general. The trials we face can't defeat the mighty provision of God's power within us. Look what Psalm 23 says. Actually, I want to read the next one down first. First John. Little children, you're from God and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. And then Psalm 23 above it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's like having a calm picnic when things around are all crazy. That's what God provides for us. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is and always will be our great provider. Let me pray. We give you praise for this, Father. We believe it. Teach us how to trust you each day with the wilderness things that confront us to remember we are never alone. You are our loving and powerful Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.